Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Seip preaches out of Matthew chapter 12 with a message called The Judgment of Nineveh, the second of a two-part series on Nineveh. We hope you find this message valuable and encouraging. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 12. Matthew 12, beginning in verse 35, 35 through 41. This is the word of God to us this morning. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have no to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they've spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was there at three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will, will stand at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the teaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning. Thank you. Last week we looked at a portion of the book of Jonah, beginning with God coming to Jonah a second time and commanding him to go to Nineveh to give a warning to the people of Nineveh. And the warning Jonah was to give was just five words long in the Hebrew language. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That was his message. And the Ninevites believed this short sermon and they immediately repented of their sin and their sin chiefly was the sin of idolatry. And the Ninevites mourned their disobedience. And now hundreds of Years later, we hear Jesus proclaiming the destruction of another generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. And we might say that Jonah's short sermon has a, a long sequel to it. Nearly a thousand years have Passed since Jonah cried through the streets of Nineveh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And now the echoes of that particular sermon are, are still lingering. A word spoken is an immortal thing. It's said that in 24 hours from a word's utterance, the vibrations of sound have reached the entire volume of the atmosphere. One might say that our world with its envelope of air is a great whisper gallery. I still recall a Twilight Zone episode where a scientist developed a machine that could capture the words spoken many years before by gathering the sound waves that were still in the air. See, vows and prayers and songs of praise the shouts and blessings from the, the tops of Mount Ebel and Gerizim, the wail of the processions that bore the Pharisees to their tombs, the shouts of the triumphal procession of 
Titus bearing the golden candlestick of the Jewish temple through the streets of Rome. They all linger forever in the waves of sound. And in the company of those who listened to the preaching of Jesus were many petty scribes and Pharisees who were forever clamoring for a sign. But he wouldn't honor them. He was always ready to answer a, a serious question, but he gives no response to mere curiosity. So Jesus said that they were an evil and a, an adulterous generation, and he said that they would have no sign beyond that that was already given, and that is the sign of the prophet Jonah. <clears throat> now the story of Jonah, the old prophet, his three days in darkness in the belly of the fish in his miraculous and marvelous deliverance from it, had been given to them in scripture as a, a foregleam of a glorious truth that was yet to be revealed. They had the truth of that in their own scripture, and that the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, which is the, the keystone of the gospel, three days in the darkness of hell and then life and immortality brought to light. And on this victory, our Lord based the truth of his divine character and his ministry. And they, if they would not believe their own scripture, if they would not believe the scripture and the prophecy of Jonah, neither would they believe that Christ had came to them and was raised from the dead. They had abundant proof, you see. They had lived in the very atmosphere of prophecy they had the oracles, they had the voices of angels who, who spoke to them. See, privilege brings with it great responsibility. And the people of Nineveh, to whom Jonah had preached his simple sermon, they had believed and they turned from their sins. But these petty Jews, ever clamoring for a sign, were absolutely hardened against the truth. Their wasted privileges would be their doom. Now the men of Nineveh would stand against them in the judgment because the Ninevites had needed the preaching of Jonah. They heeded what he said. And now behold, a greater one than Jonah was here, Christ tells us. The Ninevites then were not dead. They lived in the form of this present generation who Jesus is speaking to. But Nineveh was now buried in the time of Jesus, buried long ago. And the Lord said by the lips of his prophet Nahum, I will make thy grave. The great metropolis of Nineveh, proud, luxurious, fell at last under the burden of its sins and was buried like a worn out object of pleasure. Nothing remains of Nineveh today, but only a mass of magnificent ruins to attest to its former glory. And their gods are also dead. Time was when kings bowed down before those stone idols, when conquerors brought garlands and hung around the lifeless necks of those idols. But now the winged bulls of old Nineveh may be seen in the British Museum in the midst of that great city of London, 
bulls with human faces bearing a mystified look as if bewildered with the roar and the, the hurry of modern life. Dead now and none to do them reverence. The oldest burial ground in the world is where the Ninevites lie in stone-lined chambers by the side of that great Tigris River. Archaeologists had uncovered those graves and they found they were buried with their hands stretched out towards dishes of food and weapons and tools as if to speak of a, of a life beyond. And they were buried with their faces toward the west, towards the sunset, but with the sunset there comes the rising of the sun and there's no night without a morning. Now in 1842, the archaeologist Paul Bada, while digging among the ruins of this old metropolis, he came upon a massive structure which he rightly supposed to be the palace of Sennacherib. The top of the wall was lined with sculptured slabs written all over in cuneiform characters. And here also were prisms and tablets and cylinders and volumes of the past, books of science and grammars and, and dictionaries. And here were royal decrees and deeds of sale. Here was the last will and testament of King Sennacherib, Sennacherib himself. The clay that was placed upon those volumes that had sealed the atmosphere around them so well that when they were exhumed, it was as if they were freshly buried just the day before. And as we stand among those venerable records, it's as if the dead were living before us today. But the Ninevites, the Ninevites lived not merely in influence, but in an actual existence somewhere in the spirit world, according to Jesus. The men of Nineveh are to appear again, and they shall stand forth in judgment. They will stand in judgment. It's a stupendous fact that we shall see them in that day. And I want to bring to, to mind just a, a few things for us to remember about that coming judgment. Because you see, first of all, the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. Scripture abounds in references to that great day. Remember the call of the court crier from the steps of the old courthouse many years ago. Oh, yay, oh, yay, he would cry. In the villages, and they would come out from the taverns and along the streets and jurors and litigants and lawyers, all to attend the court. And so you see, the same will be true of that trumpet blast and the in that day of judgment, when Christ comes again and the, the dead arise from the sea, from the land, they'll come with a great cry to that court. And all will be there, souls slain in battle, the slaughtered innocents, popes and victims of the Inquisition, the lifeless body dragged out of the river, the millionaire who died with his hands clutching his wealth the cultured infidels of Christendom, the multitudes who died in the darkness of barbarism, the men of Nineveh and the men of Philadelphia, they'll all be there. Think of the, the sea of faces that will be there. 
But secondly, the judgment is a necessary factor in the moral economy of the universe. It's necessary as an equilibrium. There's but a faint show of justice, I think, in the, the present administration of the affairs of the, of the world. The poor are cast down. The wicked are exalted. Rewards go where penalties should fall and vice versa. Can we suppose that this is to be the end? You see, elsewhere, everywhere else in the universe, there's a, a perfect equilibrium. The sun draws no more water from the sea than the lakes can receive and the rivers can carry back again to the sea. There's an equilibrium there. If the pressure of the atmosphere were more or less, the earth would fall into fragments, a little less heat, and the earth would be frozen. A, a little more and it would burn up. A little more electricity in the air and our system would be ablaze with destructive forces. But everywhere in the physical world is just right. And so shouldn't we accept then that there is to be a final judgment in the province of moral things? There will be an equilibrium in the moral atmosphere of this world. The heavens should be rolled back and beyond will sit the judge upon his throne in that day. And in his hand, a great book, scripture tells us, and that book shall be opened. It's a ledger. And then will come the evening up of things to everyone his due. But also the judgment will be administered in absolute equity, absolute equality, and here we misunderstand each other, I think. We, we judge by the sight of our eyes. All things will enter into consideration in that day of judgment. Our nature, our temperament, our heredity, the environment, training, temptation. Nothing will be forgotten then in that day of judgment. And as no false sentence will be possible, so there can be no complaint or plea for a new trial. There is no appeals court in that day. Those to whom the judge shall say, depart, will unite with those to whom he says, come ye blessed. And ascribing to him an absolute fairness. And scripture reminds us that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then we shall understand that strange providences that so puzzle us now. We shall see the divine goodness above all. And as John Whittier, the hymn writer, once wrote, God's ways seem dark, but soon or late they touch the shining hills of day. Another fact regarding that judgment, the one important factor is the ultimate decisions of that great day will be the measure of our light. The measure of our light. We're moved to ask, what is to become of the heathen? Are they to be cast into hell for not accepting the gospel which they never heard? And some would say that they should be responsible only for their measure of light and shall be punished only for not living up to that measure of light. They would cite in scripture to whom much is given, 
of them shall be much required. And no doubt, it's a very difficult subject to consider that question. But what of the rabbi? I see a group of rabbis drawing near, wearing their broad phylacteries and their frontlets, on which is written, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And saying to the judge on that day, What do you have for us? And while they wait, the answer, the penitent thief of the cross draws near, saying, I saw the Redeemer but once, and my heart was shaken. I repented and believed in him, and to this man the judge shall say, Enter into the kingdom of thy God. I see a procession of vestal virgins drawing near who say, We kept the sacred fires alive. We illuminated Catholic missals and breviaries. We say the matins, the morning prayers and vespers. What do you have for us? And over there Mary Magdalene draws near with downcast face saying, I heard you as you were preaching in the streets saying, come unto me, all ye who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And with my burden of sin and shame, Unto me I came and I and anointed thy feet. And at her word the room seemed filled with the odor of that precious nard, and the judge says, Enter into the joy of thy Lord. An armor of crusaders draw near, and they bear the scars of service. They say, We fought for the rescue of the Holy Sepulchre and made battle beneath the walls of Acho. What do you have for us? And a little boy draws near, modestly saying, I had a basket of loaves and fish. And when your disciples said, give it for the hunger of the multitude, I freely gave. And the king bids them also enter into the joy of thy Lord. Here are the multitude of nominal Christians. Their names on the church roll as members in good regular standing and they say Lord we lived in the shadow of the sanctuary sat at the sacramental table said our prayers and paid our tithes with strict regularity what do you have for us and lo here come the men of Nineveh we heard your prophet once we heard his warning of approaching danger we believe that to the penitent would be the merciful. And we bowed ourselves in sorrow before you and sought your pardon. And to these the judge says, enter the joy of thy Lord. And all the surprises of that day of judgment, there will be many passing through heaven's gate who are lit along the way by a single spot of light. And there will be many who, despite an unspeakable wealth of privilege, shall be shut out forever. And do we ask what is to become of the heathen? A far more penitent question is this, what is to become of me? My book will be published in just a few weeks. It's called A Victorian Dissenter. It's about a minister in Victorian England who wrote 
nearly 200 books and tracts, who sought to win people to the Lord, but who also sought to bring believers into a closer walk with God so that in that great day of judgment, those who have been given so much spiritual privilege in this life would fully enter into the eternal joy of the Lord and without hesitation by the judge. It's greatly to be feared that the heathen tribes of Zulu, the Khanas, the Hotentots, where Robert Moffat ministered faithfully in South Africa for so many selfless years, will point their fingers at some of us in that day of judgment. We were ushered into the world with prayer. We were soothed to sleep with sacred melodies. We were taught to say, Our Father who art in heaven, to read our Bibles, to revere our confessions of faith. The sound of the church bell has ever been in our ears, and we've lived under the shadows of the cross, yet some of us have never accepted Christ, preferring to bear the burden of our own sin. Friends, what is to become of us? And now one more privilege. This sermon has in it the possibility of eternal good or evil. The sunbeam that falls with nourishing power upon that living bud to bring forth beauty and fragrance from it brings doom to a stem detached from the tree. And so it is with every discourse. It has a savor of life unto life or death unto death. And I lift up Christ again today, saying to you, a sinner, he died for you. And he that believed in Christ has everlasting life. And in this brief message is the possibility of eternal happiness. And I pray you hear it. May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think of the message that Christ gave to those of his generation, a warning that there would be no sign given except for the sign of Jonah, a sign to repent. And if the Ninevites believed Jonah one lesser than Christ himself, would not the men of his generation, would not the men of women of our generation also receive the same punishment for not accepting. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you use each and every one of us who has the truth in our own heart and life to live in such a way that we minister to those in need physically as well as spiritually and be prepared to give the hope of the, the truth that lies within us. And so be with us, Heavenly Father, as we leave here today to remember the privileges that we have and to ask the question, what will become of us in that day of judgment? And help us to live in such a way that there'll be no regret. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church, 2 Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.